the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. What does Jesus teach us about manhood? And later, we talk to Josh McDowell about his new book, How to Know That God Exists. You're listening to The Common Good. Happy Wednesday. Welcome to The Common Good here on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. My name is Brian Fromm, normally joined alongside my co-host, Aubrey Sampson, but Aubrey is out today. Aubrey is speaking at a conference, the Exponential Conference she was at all day today. Uh, So good for her. Can't wait to hear how that went. That is a, a really influential conference in the church planting world where they do a national conference, but now they've started also doing regional conferences, and Aubrey was asked to speak at that, and so she'll share that a little bit, and she's also speaking tomorrow. So I will be flying solo today and tomorrow, and Aubrey will be back with me on Friday afternoon. Hope you're having a great Wednesday. What a gloomy day out there today in the Chicagoland area. Cold, wet, it just keeps spitting, just keeps raining, so I guess fall is finally upon us, but hope you're staying dry, and we are glad that you are joining us. If you miss any of today's show, or you want to catch up on shows from earlier in the week, you can just go get our podcast wherever it is you get your podcast. Just subscribe, rate, review. You can also find us online at 1160hope.com, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at common good talk now one of the conversations that seems to rear its head oftentimes in evangelicalism these days especially in a uh, a certain type of church and certain type of pastor uh, is the idea of manhood what does a christian man look like what does a christian uh man look like and what has the church done to either inform this well or to give a false picture you know we've done a lot of talking about mark driscoll and others who was like i'm a man's man and i can think of looking back oh gosh we're going on 15 years ago there was that book that came out called why men hate going to church and every pastor was reading it and trying to change how they did things to attract men but we also do know that as men come to the church oftentimes they bring the entire family and so uh, we want to continue to build up men. And, and I got a son. There's a lot of people who have sons out there. We want to train our sons into what does it look like to be a Christian man? Now, if you go back into the 1990s, one of the places where that was really being formed in evangelicalism was at a thing called Promise Keepers. Promise Keepers, started by a former Colorado football coach, Bill McCartney, uh, was these uh, stadium conferences. And I went to it twice. I went once in Syracuse, New York, and I went once in Washington, D.C., but it was basically a gathering of men, only men where there'd be singing and there'd be teaching and there would be just kind of trying to inspire men to uh, love Jesus, love their wives, and and commit themselves uh, to being attentive, not just to their families, but engaged in their faith. That's what Promise Keepers was. It continues to have some iterations. It still exists, but it's not like the movement that it was way back in the day. But as I said, Promise Keepers still exists. And their CEO the other day uh, said in an interview, uh, he got onto this topic of Christian men. And what is it that a Christian man looks like? And what has the church gotten wrong? I wonder what you'll think of this. Let's listen to the CEO of Promise Keepers. One of the biggest contributors to the effeminization of men is the church. Yep. I'll say that again. One of the biggest reasons why because we're cheaping, we're teaching cheap grace. And by cheap grace, I mean the identity that you have of yourself will dictate how you behave. And so the church has said over and over again, like the last several decades, that you're a bad person, but Jesus loves you anyway. So try not to be bad, but if you are, don't worry, Jesus will still love you. Now have a nice day. Mm-hmm. Now, how is that identity going to affect how I behave if I hear that over and over, especially as a man, right? Man, I, 
I can't help but look up pornography, and I and I know it makes Uncle Jesus really sad when I do, but he's still going to love me, so I'll try not to, but if I do, whatever. And that's not the gospel. You're saying the church, though, has been complicit in making men less masculine. Is that what you're saying? Absolutely. Absolutely. And we've taught a Jesus that's an idol. It's not the real Jesus. We've taught a Jesus that says that love means being nice to everybody all the time. Well, when I read my Bible, Jesus wasn't very nice. He was not very nice most of the time. I mean, when you're saying, right. I set the world on fire and how I wish it was already alight, and I came to turn father against son and mother against daughter, what was Jesus saying? Love is forcing people to make a choice and doing all I can to get them to choose the only way to joy, which is salvation in Jesus Christ, and then living for him with complete abandon afterwards. That's joy. And so if I'm doing all that right, he promises us, Blessed are you when people persecute you and say all kinds of evil things against you. Great is your reward in heaven. Rejoice. Mm. That That's Jesus. And we've taught a... a, a... All right, he says we've uh, done a couple things. He says church are making men effeminate. And he also said that, uh, you know, uh, what I don't... Like, I, I've got to just lay my cards. I don't agree... Uh, I don't wholeheartedly disagree, but I disagree with a lot of what he had to say. And the reason for that is I think he sets up a straw man where he just kind of says, this is what churches do and here's how it's wrong. I just don't think it is. Or this is what we've taught about Jesus. But then he starts to go on to the teachings of Jesus. And he says that we've taught a Jesus that's an idol That's not the real Jesus. Okay, that perks your ears up. You want to go, well, we want to get the right Jesus. We want to give an accurate picture of Jesus. But here's where he goes a little weird. He goes, we've taught a Jesus that says to love means being nice to everybody. Jesus wasn't very nice. He wasn't very nice most of the time. And and let me push back on that. I feel like when these conversations about manhood, we always want to run to Jesus overturning uh, the the, the uh, tables in the temple, which he did, but that's not all that he did. And we we there's been like this narrative that says, look at we have an angry Jesus, we have a fierce Jesus, and yes, we do have that part. But also, we have a Jesus who loved little children. We have Jesus who wept at the death of his friend. We have Jesus who showed compassion, who uh, uh, who showed patience. We have a Jesus who. Uh, cared for the sick and the least of these. In fact, the only times you could really say that Jesus, quote-unquote, wasn't very nice was when he went at the religious leaders, when he went at the Pharisees and the Sadducees and those people who he thought uh, were distorting what religion was and what the people were called to do. It's categorically false to say he wasn't very nice most of the time, like we're making this angry Jesus. But I do think Jesus got angry. Jesus spoke truth. Jesus got harsh, but he did it with very specific people. It was with those religious leaders who were supposed to know better. And so I I would push back and say there's no great value or virtue in just being uh, an intense, mean man's man for the sake of being mean. That's not Jesus at all. I would suggest that Jesus showed us the whole gamut of emotions and that it would do us really well to say, who who are the people that he got angry with? What were those moments from when he did overturn the tables in the temple or where he did call people out? It had to do with hypocrisy and uh, religion and people squashing those below them. But Jesus always had tenderness with the least of these. Jesus always had tenderness uh, with those that society had forgotten. And I would suggest that's what a real man does. As we have a manhood conversation, we ask, what did Jesus do? Jesus showed us the full gamut of emotions, and he reached out and, and stepped in for those who most were vulnerable and needed help. That's what a man does, whether it be your kids or whether it be the least of these in your community, whatever else it would be. In Jesus, we see that focus. So words from Promise Keepers, what does a man look like? What do we get from Jesus that tells us this is what it means to be a man? Uh, In a little bit, we're going to have Josh McDowell join us. And that's to me, that's kind of mind-blowing, right? In my uh, high school youth group days, a lot of you probably had this too. We were constantly watching Josh McDowell videos. So the fact that I get to interview him here in a little bit, I don't know. 
high school Brian would have thought this was pretty cool. So I'm, I'm, I'm looking forward to Josh McDowell. He's going to be on to talk about his really important new book, uh, which is called How Do You Know uh, That God Exists? What, a, what an important question so many of us have. But I want to talk about something that I don't know if it's because of how often it happens I don't know if it's because we're in the political time of year or that I'm just getting older and losing patience. But the thing that bothers me increasingly is all of these stories that we see of hypocrisy. Just generally speaking, the concept of hypocrisy, the idea of hypocrisy where people say one thing and then they do another. And here's what I think bothers me so much, especially in our political world. We see politicians being hypocritical with, without even trying to hide it, without even trying to lie their way out of it often. They're just like, nope, nope, this is what I do. And it, it's just wild to me. So you want an example? This one came out of Arizona. Uh, an Arizona candidate wants to ban mail-in voting, which he uses it a lot. A report shows that Mark Fincham, uh, who is running for Arizona Secretary of State, Who's one of his platforms is to eliminate mail-in voting that he himself has voted by mail in 28 of the past 30 elections. His campaign has emerged, uh, and he's, he's one of these people who's talking about um, the last election was stolen and all of these types of things. And so uh, that's how he's gotten his thing here. That's how he's gotten his momentum But he said this, I don't care for mail-in voting. That's why I go to the polls. He said that in a debate. Now, this guy knows his history. And so a journalist just did a little bit of digging to public records that shows that Fincham has voted, as I said, by mail in 28 of the previous 30 elections. In other words, as this reporter wrote, Fincham votes by mail almost 100% of the time. And we could do an entire show of just hypocrisy, right? We've talked about the Herschel Walker stuff going on right now, which I, I said this yesterday. I understand. I, I guess I let, let's put it this way. So the Herschel Walker, he's running for the Senate in Georgia. And what a lot of people have brought up is the fact that it there's a lot of evidence. He's still denying it, but a lot of evidence to suggest that Herschel Walker uh, paid for the abortion of a child of one of his mistresses, that he's had many kids out of wedlock, all of these things. But especially the religious right and the conservatives are staying behind him. In their, they're kind of cloaking it in a religious facade. And Aubrey and I had this conversation yesterday saying that I would have so much more respect for people who just said this. Listen, I know he's not a good dude. I know he doesn't always stand for do the things that we wish he would do, but this election is so important for us to get uh, control of the Senate that we need a Republican in there. Kershaw Walker is the Republican on the ballot, so we're going to do all we can to get him elected. Like, I just wish people would come out and say that rather than cloaking everything in, uh, you know. Uh, just kind of a religious veneer or whatever else. We see this in churches. We see this, as I've just shared some stories on the right, we see this all the time on the left. We see this everywhere. And I just wish that it would stop. I know it's not going to, but I just wish it would stop. I find it making me so upset every time there's hypocrisy, that blatant hypocrisy. And here's where I want to land this plane, though. Ultimately, We know that our politicians are going to do whatever they have to do to get elected. We know that they are going to be hypocritical. But this should not be the case in the church. This cannot be the case with the Christ follower. Will we have moments of hypocrisy? Will we have moments where our lives don't match up with what we say? Absolutely. That's what it means to be fallen human beings. Thank God for forgiveness and grace. But instead, what I'm talking about is that habitual, like, I'm going to say one thing, I'm going to preach one thing from the pulpit, I'm going to say one thing to my core, whatever else it might be, and I'm going to live a completely different way. That can't happen. It undermines the gospel. If we are Christ's messengers, Christ's ambassadors, and yet we are living lives of, of dark hypocrisy, then not only does it say something about our soul, but what else it does is it's going to cut out our ability uh, to, with any good standing, talk about Jesus and share Jesus. Because why would anyone listen to you? 
Jesus had his harshest words. We said this earlier in the show. Jesus had his harshest words uh, for uh, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. And in the Gospels, what does Jesus say to them? He says, woe to you hypocrites. And then I love this imagery because it's so, it makes such sense. Jesus says to the Pharisees, you are whitewashed tombs, concerned with what people see on the outside, not about the death and decay on the inside. And what is Jesus's words to them when he says, woe to you? He says, deal with the inside, deal with the death and decay on the inside, deal with the hypocrisy that I'm calling you out for. These religious leaders were just worried about uh, the power that they could have, uh, the influence they could have, staying on top, being seen a certain way, but they were corrupt. And Jesus says, woe to you, Pharisees. You say one thing and you do another. You hold up this image, you do another. It's this idea of image management. We understand it in our politicians, friends. We get it. We get it. Politicians, by almost by definition now, say one thing and do another. But unfortunately, that then seeps its way down into the church, into the culture, And we begin to start saying, oh, you know, maybe it doesn't matter exactly that my actions match my words. If you are a Christ follower, your actions must increasingly match your words. Because if they do not, then your words lose all credibility. And the opportunity to share Jesus with a friend, with a neighbor, with a coworker, with a family member gets torpedoed because your actions are saying something altogether different. You are Christ's ambassadors, messengers of reconciliation, called to go in the world, into the world in word and action to proclaim and show the love of Jesus. And my fear, friends, is that the hypocrisy within the church is increasingly doing the opposite. So we can point our fingers at the church, but what I would encourage you to do and what I'll do myself is look in the mirror. What do I see in my own life? Is there hypocrisy to which Jesus would say, woe to you? Deal with the inside. Quit worrying about what people see on the outside. Hypocrisy. We expect it in our politicians. May it never be a part of the church. Well, I couldn't be more thrilled to be able to have with us the author of a new book called How to Know God Exists. Solid reasons to believe in God, discover truth, and find meaning in your life. The author of that book is Josh McDowell. Josh, thanks so much for joining us. How are you today? I am absolutely incredible, almost as good as you. <laughs> well, that's good to hear. Two guys doing well on a radio, so this this is going to be a lot of fun. So, Josh, uh, as we said, the new book is called How to Know God Exists. So let's start really high level. Let's start really big question. What's one or two of your answers? How do we know that God exists? Well, there's the primary way that we know is through the revelation of the scriptures. Mm-hmm. Uh, for example, my life, uh, I set out to refute it all. Mm-hmm. And I knew if I could refute the scriptures as being historically accurate and reliable, my case was won. Mm-hmm. That was it. It was all over for Christianity. And the more I examined it, the more I became convinced that what I have is what was written down. What was written down was true. Mm-hmm. And uh, once I became convinced of that, then the scripture revealed who God is, how we can know him and everything, what his character is like, his nature. That's the, you know, the traditional way. Yeah. Then second is through, um, through reasoning. Um, reasoning through uh, how does something come out of nothing? How can dialogue and thought processes come out of uh, a non-objective origin? Mm-hmm. And so I just believe uh, I became convinced through that I'm able to reason. I'm able to evaluate. I'm able to consider God. I'm able to look at the evidence around me, the evidence within me, uh, that there is a God and he exists. Mm. And But to me, that is strong. But it only really became powerful to me when it was backed up and supported by Scripture. Mm. 
Yeah. Then when it tied into the scripture, and I said, wow, hmm. it's quite easy to know there is a God. Yeah, yeah. And Josh, it makes me also wonder, not only the answer as to how do we know there's a God, but why is this such a fundamental question that everybody at some point in their life asks? What is, the, what is it that makes this the question for us? Well, probably the three questions that are always asked in every culture, every generation since the beginning of time, uh, time in the scripture, is the three simple questions. Who am I? A question about our identity. Why am I here? The question about my purpose. Mm. And where am I going? The question about my identity. And if you consider those three questions, if you're intelligent at all, you're going to ask, well, is there a God? Mm. Because without a personal creator God, I do not believe you can intelligently answer those questions. Yeah. And uh, so I think the three basic questions of life, who am I, why am I here, where am I going, will lead to the question, is there a God? Mm. There must be. Yeah, absolutely. And you talk in the book, you say, uh, in today's culture, like our cultures have changed, I'm sure through the years of doing ministry, you've seen so many shifts within culture, but in today's culture... God has actually used the phrase largely been banished, like things have just changed. Uh, Talk to us a little bit about how you've seen that over the years and how that affects people even as they ask this question. Well, there's two different aspects to it. One is uh, traditionally people would ask about what does it mean? Uh, Who am I? What does that mean? Where am I here going and everything? What does that mean? And uh, it eventually changed to, what does the Bible mean? And they would try to refute it by showing it's meaningless to the question is, is it reliable? Mm. So it's gone from the interaction from its meaning of the scripture to the reality, is it reliable? Is it true? Is it God's word? Mm -hmm. And you almost say it's turned from the subjective to the objective. Uh, to is it uh, true? Yeah, yeah. And then the second, I can't remember what it was right now. (laughs) (laughs) I got tied up in the first. Uh, I'll be darned. Hey, it happens to the best of us. It happens to the best. Because we have 10 minutes, and I know we don't have a lot of time. There you go. There you go. Let's ask it this way. So somebody's in their car right now, and they just happen to come across this radio station, you know, uh, and they say, they hear you what you're saying, and they go, yeah, I've never, I, I almost don't think that we could ever know whether God is there or not. What's the first step? What would you encourage them to do first if they're like, I really would like to figure all of this out? Is there a first step you would encourage somebody to take? From where I'm coming from, yes. Mm-hmm. And is this, is the Bible trustworthy? Mm. Is the Bible trustworthy? Because everything, I think, in truth that we learn about God, about Christ, the resurrection, everything, comes in the Scriptures. So my first question is, is the Bible trustworthy? If it's not, then I don't have to worry about all those things. If it is, then I'd better consider what it says. Mm. Uh, So I tell people, what determines if any piece of literature is accurate is and reliable in history. And then I'll just say, whatever you come up with, apply it to the Scriptures. Mm. Uh, apply it to the scriptures. Can I trust the... Or then drive immediately to a Christian bookstore, another bookstore, and buy my books. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, let me, let me uh, dig down into the Bible there for you a little bit. Um, why do you trust the Bible? Because I agree with you that that's the fundamental, or at least one of the top fundamental questions. So help people understand, why does Josh McDowell trust the Bible? Well, there's two questions I have to answer as a non-believer. Is what I have in my hands today, the Bible, say the New Testament, what was written down 2,000 years ago, or has it been changed? Mm. Is what I have what was written down, or has it been changed? But the second question is even more important. Was what was written down true? In other words, did Jesus actually say that? Mm. Did he actually do that? And so I first had to start it out. I had to 
convince myself, show that what I have today is what was written down. And the biggest thing for me were the manuscripts. Um, one of the first tests is what's called the bibliographical test of any document of history. Is it reliable and accurate? And it asks questions about the manuscripts. And the basic premise is this. The more manuscripts you have, the easier it is to recreate the autographer, the original, and check out any errors or discrepancies. Has it been changed? Mm. Well, the average, average book in history, great writings and everything, might have 45, 50, up to maybe 75 manuscripts that exist. With the scriptures, it goes up to 105,000. Wow. That's, Did you get that? That's, that's unbelievable. 105,000. Hmm. In those 105,000 manuscripts, as most scholars would say, we have the exact words of what Jesus said. Now you just need to find them. And there are certain principles you use to find the original text. Hmm. And so that's what I had to do. And it blew my mind when I said, you've got to be kidding. There can't be 105,000 manuscripts where there are. Hmm. And uh, so that was my first step. Yeah. Was uh, seeing that. And then second was what was written down true. Well, the New Testament writers wrote as eyewitnesses. As they said, what our eyes have seen, what our, not somebody else, what our ears have heard, what our hands have handled, this is what we are declaring to you. They knew Jesus. They walked with Jesus. They lived with Jesus. They understood Jesus. And they became convinced, the first century believers, who had a lot more stake than we did. Because if they believed it, they'd probably be killed. Mm-hmm. If we believe it, we won't be. That's right. And That's so right. they put more emphasis on the evidence. And they were convinced that Christ lived, he was buried for three days, and raised again from the dead. Mm-hmm. And they said, after he was crucified and buried for 40 days, we lived with him, we walked with him, we talked with him, we ate with him. I mean, that's pretty convincing evidence. Absolutely. Absolutely. Again. And uh, so if I can't trust them, they paid the price. That's they right. testimony and blood. I can't trust anyone. Amen to that. That is so true. Again, the book is called How to Know God Exists, Solid Reasons to Believe in God, Discover Truth, and Find Meaning in Your Life. I would encourage you to go get that. You can get it at Tyndale.com. You could also find it at Amazon or whatever it is you get your books. Uh, and Josh, before I let you go, I do just want to say, I'm sure you hear this all the time, but man, evidence that demands a verdict, more than a carpenter. So many of your books were really influential for me and many of us out there, I am sure. So I guess for other people out there, I just want to say thanks. And uh, I can remember. Well, thank you for sharing yeah, that. Yeah. I appreciate that. Uh, and we are grateful to read this book. We are very excited again. So Josh McDowell, uh, the author of How to Know God Exists. Josh, thanks for spending some time with us today. Well, thank you. I couldn't have. I couldn't turn down the honorarium. (laughs) (laughs) There is this. I saw Russell Moore wrote about this over Christianity Today uh, last week about the altar call. And I, I don't know if that's part of your upbringing, but for a lot of us, you know, you'd go to that youth conference. You'd go to the Billy Graham crusade. I got to go to that once or twice. You'd go to, maybe it was just your church on a Sunday morning. Maybe this was part of your upbringing, but there is that altar call pastor gets to the end of his message and then you've got uh you've got the musician behind him just kind of playing softly and he gives the old with every head bowed and every eye closed and if you're like me you were opening your eyes you were trying to look around you were trying to see what happens but it was like this every every head bowed every eyes closed just as i am is playing and it's like if you want to give your life to Jesus right now, come on forward or raise your hand or whatever else, however else they did it. And it was in that moment that you would be that anticipation. You're like, come Holy Spirit. There's this anticipation that something is happening. And, and I don't know. I know in some traditions you still see that a lot. But I think Russell Moore is right that the, the altar call has gone away a little bit. And he says that there are good reasons for that, but there are also things that we are missing. So what's the positive side of the 
altar call going away. Russell Moore says the altar call could foster the worst in evangelical spirituality. Why is that? It's this idea of just do this one thing and you're fine. Uh, That it's not this long obedience in the same direction, but it's this moment in time. And, uh, you know, there, there's, they, they can be really emotionally, let's be honest, the altar call could be emotionally manipulative. And uh, I was the one who, ah, gosh, I came to, um, I put my faith in Jesus. I prayed the prayer at a very young age. But man, every time there was an altar call, whether it be at a youth conference or a Billy Graham crusade or whatever, I was going forward. You got to cover your bases, right? I'm making that move. And, I, and so I think the altar call more says here, in some ways, it, it confused the issue. It was just get the person to pray the prayer. That's all that matters. Just pray the prayer. And and with that, there came to be this evangelical scorekeeping. I've shared this story on these airs before. I, I went to a conference when I was in high school called Operation Good News. And if you know of Operation Good News, it was we're going to train you in the morning of how to share your faith. And then we're going to send you out as a high school kid in pairs to go share your faith, go up with a clipboard, ask people questions. The year I did it, we went to Atlantic City in New Jersey. Kind of why I grew up in New Jersey, so we're down at the beach. And then I remember you would come back at the end of the day and everybody would be like, I got this many people to pray the prayer. I got this many people. And they literally had a tally going on the wall. And I remember even sophomore me, I was only a sophomore in high school going, something seems weird and off about this. So that kind of scorekeeping was a little, uh, there was there was a manipulation to it. There was a finality to it. So those were the negative sides. But why does more than say to bring back the altar call? Because I think at the same time, it taught us some really important lessons. One, the urgency. There was an urgency to the altar call. Decide today who it is you will serve. Decide today. Not a week from now, not a year from now, but today. Who is it that you will serve? Who will you declare to be Lord? Sometimes we lose an urgency in our churches, in our lives, and I'll get to that. The altar call said, no, you've got to do this now. And then there was obvious follow-up that could occur, right? Like, okay, who raised their hands? There was an order to it. There was a, um, yeah, an order, a process to it when done well. Uh, but also what the altar call did, and, and I think more is getting at where, why this needs to come back, was it raised the bar of evangelism. I can remember being young, and the concept of evangelism uh, was much more prominent than it is in most of our churches today. It was, I need my neighbor, my family member, my friend to hear this message and be brought to the place of decision, not to try to seal the deal for my own sake, but to, uh, so that they might know this hope that we have in Christ. There was this idea of urgency, urgency, but of evangelism. People must know. And so there was an urgency for the person hearing, but also for the person inviting and praying and preaching. It was like, now's the moment. Now's the moment. We're going to build to this pinnacle. We're going to be right here. We're doing this for a purpose. And we've lost a little bit of that. Like, where's your urgency? If you're a Christian, where's your urgency right now to go and make disciples, to Share the good news of Jesus Christ. I don't think it needs to be done with a clipboard or with a megaphone or whatever else, but it needs to be done. We read in the scriptures, do the work of an evangelist, that that's not for other people to do, but that we are to each and every one of us take up our call to go and make disciples, to do the work of an evangelist. And I think the altar call reminded us of that. God's at work. He's doing something. I'm going to pray for my friends. I'm going to invite them to this place. So there were bad things, manipulative things about the altar call. I get it, but but don't throw the baby out with the bathwater. What can we learn from that? What can we learn about urgency and evangelism and, and expectation? That would be the last thing I would remember. There was an expectation that God was up to something, that God was doing something 
and there was a, this expectation that, you know what, I, I'm, I'm, I'm waiting on God. And so I do miss it. I do think that this might be something that we need to have back into our churches more often. I'm grateful for Russell Moore bringing back the altar call. We're excited to be joined uh, by Stuart McAllister as we talk about an event going on at the Glen Ellen Covenant Church tomorrow night, that being on Thursday, through the C.S. Lewis Institute. Stuart, thanks for joining us today. How are you? I'm doing very well, thank you. Yeah, we're really glad to have you with us. I'm really interested to hear more about this event tomorrow, so could you tell us some details about it? Yes, this is a part of the C.S. Lewis Institute. I guess they do these uh, periodic um, topics where they feature on issues of the present time that affect discipleship, the gospel in the modern world, and how we can wrestle with themes. So tomorrow night, the theme is going to be looking at hope in light of our anxious times, since so many people are wondered about what's going on about the culture and the challenges, and how does how does hope as a Christian concept of truth, how does that uh, impact us and hold our lives as we try and respond in this challenging time. Yeah, absolutely. Again, that's at Glen Ellen Covenant Church on Thursday from 6.30 till 8.30 p.m. Again, as Stuart said, it's called Embracing Hope in Anxious Times. Uh, You are invited to be there. So, Stuart, let's talk about this. Such an important topic. Uh, It does kind of feel worldwide, in our country, everywhere. It feels like anxiety, especially post-COVID, is kind of uh, at a at, at a real high right now. Is that what you're seeing? Do you feel like anxiety itself is kind of dominating our culture right now? Oh, I think without a doubt. I think that, you know, all the statistics, I mean, clearly just have a conversation with anyone. But if you watch the news between what's happening in Europe with both the fuel, the war in Russia with the, the, Russia and Ukraine, mm-hmm. what's happening in, with China, yeah, there's a massive sense of anxiety about markets, about about health, about the government. And I think the information overload is part of the problem. People just haven't got a means to cope and they find it just somewhat overwhelming, can't deal with the deluge of information, can't interpret it, and over time just get anxious and withdraw or indulge in some way to try and deal with the pain. Absolutely. It it is just, it feels like everywhere right now. So uh, you're going to talk about embracing hope. Um, I I guess I want to ask about both those words. Let's start with the word hope, but we'll eventually get to how does one embrace it. But where do we find hope? Obviously, we believe kind of cosmically like we find hope in Jesus, but how would you def- describe hope and, and how would you help people understand that it's even available? Well, I think for many people, they forget that one of the three legs of the Christian still, faith, hope, and love, these are not just ideas and they're certainly not feelings. They're, they're theological virtues. Hope is, is an attitude towards the future that believes that the future will be better than the present. Mm. That's why. Many of the reasons I think many people are upset is because they've had hope, so-called, that emotion, more like optimism in the wrong things. They're hoping in the wrong thing, and they're hoping for the wrong thing. So part of the process of this is defining what is hope, what does the Bible say hope is, and how does that hope, what difference does that make? Is it just words? Is it just descriptions? Or is there substance to that? the definitions that make a difference to how we should then live. And I would say it's a very powerful difference. Yeah, absolutely. And uh, what happens for a person out there who's putting their hope in a larger bank account or a job promotion or whatever else it might be, anything other that we put our hope in? Um, what, what would you counsel somebody as the danger in putting our hope anywhere other than in Jesus? Well, it's, it's ephemeral, it's short-term, it's like the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanity, others vanity of striving after wind. Those things will pass away. You can't take your bank account with you mm. into eternity. You can't take these, and once we're all at some level deeply materialistic, and that's part of the problem. What we are saying as hope in most people's lives is optimism. And when optimism runs up against a stock market crash, a COVID epide- epidemic, the threat of war and destruction, then they realize they're standing on basically temporal ground. There's no eternal dimension. Right. And Christianity isn't a, it's not a band-aid. It's either real or it's not. It's either true or it's not. And I believe that the eternality of God and the gospel in Christ is not just a set of concepts, it's what salvation means by knowing God and being tied to something that is eternal and is lasting hmm. and is ultimate. 
Oh, that's so, so good. Again, C.S. Lewis Institute is putting on this thing called Embracing Hope in Anxious Time with Stuart McAllister. It's going to be tomorrow, Thursday, October the 13th at Glen Ellen Covenant Church from 6.30 till 8.30 p.m. It is a free event, but they need you to register so they kind of have an idea of who's coming. So you can go to cslewisinstitute.org. That's cslewisinstitute.org and sign up for Embracing Hope. Uh, Stuart, you've done a wonderful job uh, helping us understand what hope is. Now the hard part, how does one embrace it? How does one actually live holding on to that hope when we're just surrounded by all this anxiety and all these waves around us? Well, that's, that's a very powerful point. Dallas Willard, you know, talked about in the spiritual disciplines that you need three, three components, you know, vision, intention, and means. And I think what most people have is sincerity and good ideas. They don't actually have any practices. So you, we, we become better Christians by training, not just by trying. Mm. And part of that is we have to put ourselves in a place where hope through meditation on scripture, by learning to get our thoughts under control, but practices. I would say listen to a lot less news, <laughs> do a fast on some of your internet watching, yeah. abandon some of it totally, and concentrate on the sources of hope and make sure there are people who help nourish hope in your soul so that you can have, you can't give what you don't have. That's right. You need practices to bring that in. You just touched on something really important. Uh, speak to the news. Speak to social media and the anxiety that that's causing in our culture and why it's important to pull away from that at times. Well, I think it's very, I mean, there's three phases that I was thinking about this just recently. I talk about invasive eminence, inflated importance, and insistent immediacy. And the invasive eminence is the tendency that the media, whether internet, news, on your phone, and whatever, it gets into your consciousness. Everything is given an inflated importance. It's given far more value than it's actually worth or is real. But it, And you're told that you have to do something about this now, and you can't. So the sense of powerlessness gets compounded, the sense of, of desperation. I've got all these facts, the world's going to hell in a handbasket, whatever I feel, and I have no means of responding. That's not the gospel. I mean, when the, the psalmist was in distress, he said, hope thou in God. Mm. He reaches out to know that there's an eternal anchor, something bigger, something real, something greater that is there. And as Francis Schaeffer said, is not silent. Yeah. We need that voice and we need that presence and we need that power. And when thinking about anxiety, let's close here, is uh, there's that very famous and, and important verse in the book of Philippians. It says, don't be anxious about anything. And then it points us to prayer. Uh, help people understand the role of prayer in embracing hope and not living anxious and receiving that peace that passes all understanding. That's a, that's a, that's an absolute correct way to look. So be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. So first of all, the world around us is saying be anxious for everything. They're saying exactly the opposite. Prayer is our communion with God. It's saying there is a source. There is a being. There is a presence, there is love, there is grace, there is kindness, there is mercy, and it's available at the end of prayer. And prayer is not just asking like Santa Claus in the sky, mm -hmm. it's reaching out for hope, for dependence, for communion, and God hears and God answers and God waits to be wanted in that sense. So I think prayer is one of the great connectors and something if we, will, we'll, we need more in this time to just reach out and trust that our hands are in the eternal God's hands and we can put our trust, our rest, our hope, and our faith where it, where it best belongs. Oh, amen. Again, everybody, you can go hear much more of this from Stuart McAllister uh, at the event called Embracing Hope in Anxious Times through the C.S. Lewis Institute. It's happening Thursday night, this Thursday, October the 13th, from 6.30 till 8.30 p.m. at the Glen Ellen Covenant Church. Again, this is a free event, but you do need to register. You can do that by going to the cslewisinstitute.org. That's cslewisinstitute.org. Stuart, I hope the event goes great. Thanks for spending some time with us today. Thanks for having me. I've really enjoyed it. Thank My you. pleasure. I am thrilled to be joined by the director of the Center for Women in Leadership at Northern Seminary. Uh, her name is Kelly DiPolito. Kelly, how are you today? I'm wonderful, Brian. Thank you so much. It's a wonderful opportunity to speak with you, and I'm really grateful for it. Yeah, it's, we're really grateful for you spending some time with us. Uh, and we wanted to have you on to talk about a one-day event that is coming up. Uh, I believe it's called Come Tove uh, 2022. Could you tell us more about that event? 
Yeah, on Friday, October 21st, it's both in person and live stream. So if you're in the Chicagoland area, um, we'd love to have you be there for as part of our live studio audience for the event. Um, it's called Tov for Women. Tov is a beautiful, mysterious Hebrew word translated as good in Genesis 1 and 2. So our goal is to bring goodness into our church cultures, and mm. that is what Tov for Women is about. Oh, that's great. Uh, I want to dive into that more, but before we do, what's the structure of the day? And then also, where can people go to get information, and more importantly, to sign up for it? All right, fantastic. Um, to get more information and to register, go to the Center for Women and Leadership's website, which is called cwlnorthern.com, and go to our events page, and it will tell you about our speakers, and there's a registration button, super easy. Mm-hmm. Um, and it gives you more information, and it's just, it's great. We're excited about that. But the format of the day is it's from 9 to 3.30. We're going to live stream the main sessions in the morning, and that's going to be Dr. Scott McKnight, Mm -hmm. Dr. Lisa Bowens from Princeton Theological Seminary, and Vivian Mabuni, who has extensive experience with crew. So we're thrilled to have the three of them talk about bringing goodness into our church cultures. Really, the theme of our event is moving from church hurt to hope. Mm. And if anybody right. has read Scott McKnight's book, A Church Called Toe, I mean, it's phenomenal. Mm-hmm. So really, uh, he's he will be worth the price of admission alone, let alone all the other great right. speakers you guys have. Let's talk about church hurt uh, before getting to the hope. It does feel like there's a movement right now of people acknowledging that over the last years or decades uh, that our churches haven't always been the healthiest places. Uh, help people just understand the the role that church trauma and church hurt plays long term and how people see the church and how they see God. Wow, that's quite the question. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, church hurt, there's a, such a wide spectrum of church hurt and ch- being abused by churches. And that is an area in which I just have great sadness mm-hmm. um, for those tragedies that are to occur. Yeah. Um, you know, I believe women and to be treated in a way that is hurtful and abusive in church environments specifically is a, it is a horrible thing. Um, I really appreciate Scott's book, A Church Called Tove, mm-hmm. because it put into the, um, it put into the conversation and gave language to, for, to not be alone, right? right. I think that that's one of the most important things when we talk about church hurt and church trauma is that we come together in a safe place and you're no longer alone. Mm. And that is one thing that's really important to the Center for Women in Leadership is that we support women in leadership because we are there to help men and women lead together for mutual flourishing. Mm. So, when you experience church hurt and church trauma, clearly that is broken and warped and distorted and twisted and weaponized. Mm, that's a that's a really well put. So, uh, what does um, what you you unpacked it before? But let's unpack it again. Even that word "tove." Uh, and mm-hmm. why that changes things, why that changes the conversation so in such important ways. Uh, define that word again for people and, and then what it could mean for us today. Tov is the Hebrew word that in Genesis 1 and 2 is translated as good. Mm-hmm. And I really want to communicate a lot with my tone of voice there because it's not about something being, oh, good or bad. It's being good. Mm-hmm. That thoroughness and that purity of really good, right? Mm-hmm. And that is what Tove is. It is that perfect shalom goodness of God being expressed in creation is what we see in Genesis 1 and 2. Mm-hmm. And so we, um, as the church, we as Christians, we as people of faith, um, we're to bring that goodness into our lives, into all aspects of our lives, to experience the goodness of God. Mm. 
what does it look like for the church to bring goodness? You know, we think about it at the church or whatever, but into our communities, into our neighborhoods. Uh, what what does that look like? What are the results of that? Well, first, um, and I'll go back to Scott's book, where a church called Tove really um, brought forward a conversation that church hurt and church abuse is happening, and we need to reckon with that and be honest about that and believe people's stories. Mm. We need we need to believe, sir. Right? Yeah. And that really brought that conversation forward. This Tove event is going to take it one step further, and that we'll be previewing the themes of Scott's next resource that will come out next year um, called Tove Unleashed, which is more about that movement into the next step of instead of tolerating toxicity, mm-hmm. let's cultivate goodness in our cultures. Where is our church culture as a whole? Where cultures as a whole um, toxic for us, and therefore, how can we address that and move into places and spaces where there is flourishing? Yeah, yeah. So that's where the goodness comes in, and part of the big conversation of this particular one day event. Oh, that's great. Let's uh, before I ask you the last question, why don't you give the details again so people can sign up for the one day event? Where can you point them? Register at cwlnorthern.com at the events page. CWL stands for the Center for Women in Leadership at Northern, and our registration information about our speakers, Dr. Lisa Bowens from Princeton Theological Seminary, Vivian Mabuni with Crew, and Scott McKnight, who is a New Testament professor at Northern Seminary. Those are our three main sessions. Oh, also one thing to note mm-hmm. is that in the afternoon, we're going to have a special preaching session with Dr. Marshall Hatch. Oh, that's great. Um, isn't that so good? Absolutely. So, the whole thing is from 9 to 3.30. You can join us for a piece of it, a morning, an afternoon, um, live stream, all the things. And we would love to have you there. That's great. Let me ask you this question, Kelly. We'll end here. As we talk about church hurt and church hope, kind of this crossroads, um, are you hopeful for the church? Do you think the church is going to end up, and not end up, but it's going to head in the right direction here? Yes, I hope so. <laughs> my deepest, because my deepest yeah. value is redemption. Mm. Um, my deepest value is that movement toward the goodness of the kingdom of God. Mm-hmm. Moving towards that, um, let us be honest and reckon. And then also, while we hold space for that, while we hold that intention, while we recognize and let those emotions, let's feel it deeply and move forward toward hope mm. so that we have mutual flourishing. And I want to be part of the conversation, both personally and professionally, that brings honesty, authenticity, and, um, and goodness yeah. into the world. Oh, that's a great word. Kelly DiPolito, again, Director of the Center for Women in Leadership at Northern Seminary. Kelly, it sounds like a wonderful event. Thanks for spending some time with us today. I really appreciate it, Brian. Thank you. Absolutely. You're listening to The Common Good. AIM 1160, hope for your life. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.